Hey everybody, welcome to week nine. And it's getting close to the end of the term. Just a few more of these lectures left. It is day 75 on the quarantine count up for me. And that's, uh, that seems pretty momentous. It also happens to be Tuesday, which as we all know is Taco Tuesday. You can celebrate Taco Tuesday by not eating tacos, but we happen to be eating tacos for dinner tonight. I don't know why I felt the need to mention that, but there it is. Uh, definitely gonna try to keep it brief today feeling the term winding down and also just knowing that like you know the last thing that anybody really needs is a really really long lecture so I'm going to try to give you just the basic punch of the postmodern critique of liberalism and know that the reading that was assigned for today uh, really does uh, I think a pretty good job of elaborating on a lot of the really important points um, if you read it and it was challenging to read, I would say that listen to this lecture and go back and, and give it another read because that will help. If you haven't read it yet, um, then just know that, that kind of from what I'm going to talk about today will hopefully make it uh, more comprehensible. But the reading, I think in accompaniment with what I plan on talking about today, I don't know how successfully I'm going to talk about it, but I have a plan, um, should give you a really good idea about uh, what the postmodern critique of liberalism is. And it's you know, in its basic, most uh, sort of one-on-one form. Now, this is not a one-on-one class, so I don't mean at that level, I just mean the postmodern critique entry point. Um, postmodernism is very complex, and sometimes uh, extraordinarily dense and difficult to follow. I will admit that it, over the course of 25 years of, of reading about and teaching uh, postmodernism in various classes, that the uh, concepts and the method have sometimes eluded me and other times I've understood it and so if you're having this kind of back and forth uh, relationship with well, what is this really I get it no I don't get it anymore just know that that's actually that's a typical uh, that's a typical uh, presentation of symptoms of grappling with postmodernism uh, there are a number of different intellectual tools that postmodernism brings to bear on its analysis or a postmodern uh, style of analysis of whatever the object of its analysis happens to be. In this case, today, liberalism, and more specifically, economic liberalism and liberal internationalism. Um, the, the essential sort of thing that's tricky about postmodernism compared to other doctrines or ideologies that we study is there's always this lingering question that I think is utterly unanswerable, which is, what is postmodernism looking to do? What does it want? What, is the, what kind of world does a postmodern envision? Um, and in a way, that's an unavoidable question because you know, if, some, if there's gonna be a critique, and that's what we're gonna do, it's a natural thing to say, well, if, if you have a problem with this, if you're taking this thing apart, what is it that, that you want? Why are you doing this? Um, I've never really seen or heard or read a very good, concise idea but, uh, of what it is postmodernism wants, but what I've been able to glean is that what postmodernism really wants is it wants to inculcate a clearer understanding of the dynamics that go into the construction of ourselves and the social world. Um, and for what purpose? That's the, like, why, right? Why do that? Why have, a, why have a better, deeper, more subtle, more essentially accurate understanding of what goes into uh, the construction of our self-identities and uh, our social forms? Um, in almost every other case, every other ideology, there's some kind of better world, right? The, the liberal critique of feudalism, the liberal critique of uh, conservatism, the Marxist-Leninist critique of liberalism, uh, the communitarian critique of liberalism, the fascist critique, 
they all have in common that they are actually aiming at a different world, a different construction, a different set of self-identities and social uh, constructions. And those are meant to be the right ones. There's, the, there's a normative stance. Uh, this very normativity uh, of most forms of political analysis and uh, political uh, philosophizing um, is something that postmoderns are reluctant to embrace because to them, normativity is actually one of the things that they're looking at, one of the things they're analyzing to try to understand the role that normative discourses, the, the, the talking about the shoulds, how is it that those forms of normativity uh, are uh, participating in constructing and us, uh, us constructing for ourselves and the people constructing for us our senses of self-identity and the social uh, forms that we occupy. Um, so there is that reluctance to then embrace this thing which is essentially part of the object of the analysis, but there's also uh, an, an embrace of the underlying, uh, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for here, the underlying um, suspicion of pure normative standpoints that we saw it was kind of a tripping point for liberalism that uh, liberals are committed to this notion that uh, individual sovereignty means that individuals get to come up with their own conception of the good and there is no pure normative standpoint to say well that that conception of the good is better than that one or this is the right conception of the good that we should all be embracing and moving towards um, yet there is kind of when we get into the uh, argument for why liberalism and its uh, privileging of the sovereign individual, why we should accept this versus another view of the self and of the social world, there's a, a difficulty not resorting to some kind of pure normative standpoint. Um, Postmodernism wants to avoid that paradox or that trap, and what's given up in the process really is kind of then the ability to say, well, what do you want, right? You have a problem with liberalism, you have a problem with uh, with socialism, you have a problem with conservatism, you have a problem with communitarianism, with fascism. Well, great, okay, what do you want? What, what would be the better thing in its place? Um, what do you want, if, if, if the thing that we've moved towards is not what you think is the right way, what is the right way? It's, it is actually quite difficult to avoid taking that normative stance because it is a very natural type of question. What I think postmoderns want is not to critique the liberal order that we live in. And the postmodern uh, analysis is really aimed at the liberal order less than at the socialist order or the conservative order or the communitarian order, mostly because the liberal order is the dominant one. It is the one that ha in the world that we occupy for the last century at least, um, it has uh, been the dominant way that people, at least in, the, in Europe and in North America, and increasingly throughout the rest of the world, come to understand themselves, their place in the world, uh, and the social forms that uh, they occupy and inhabit and their relationship between their, their identities, their individuality, and those social forms. So um, postmodern uh, critique is aimed at the essentially the dominant discourse uh, that is the strongest, most influ influential, most powerful way in which we understand ourselves, our place in the world, and the social forms that we inhabit. Um, I think that what postmodern analysts want and of course, you know, if you ask individual ones, they might agree or disagree with this, but I think that what it's aimed more towards is as opposed to some post-liberal vision of a better world, I think that what it's aimed towards is loosening the hold of the dominant discourse in the name of 
What? Well, I, I think that at the risk of kind of flirting with, if not outright embracing a pure normative standpoint, uh, to increase our sense of autonomy over our own self-conceptions and over the social forums that we occupy, to loosen the hold of the dominant way of thinking about ourselves and the world and our relationship to uh, these social forms. Why? Well, in a way, as an end in itself, right? It's just, it, 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 it doesn't mean that there's gonna be a better world, it doesn't mean that, that we're gonna point towards a different political form. It's just a way of saying that there's power operating on us. And that power operates through two main things. The two main concepts are discourses and practices. And that it, what these things do together is they exercise power over our self-conceptions. And the self-conceptions include what our fundamental identity is, what our relationship to the universe is, what our relationship to other people is, the ideal social forms, uh, what our relationship to these ideal social forms uh, happens to be. So I, I'll leave all that without putting it on the board because it can, could get a little messy. But just know that like our self-conceptions include essentially our individual identity, our social forms, and the relationship between uh, our individual identity and, and those social forms. Postmodernism says that uh, or postmodern analysts are essentially operating on the premise that the discourses, and discourses are, are essentially ways that we talk about things. Uh, a, a, like the liberal discourse includes a set of concepts, basic arguments, intellectual tools uh, that frame how it is that we explain and discuss the universe. So that's what a, what a discourse is. It's essentially, it's a set of uh, intellectual and uh, intellectual tools and vocabulary and concepts and styles of putting all of those things together. Practices are the things that we do based on how we talk about the world, right? Like, for example, the scientific method is both a discourse and a practice. Uh, the scientific method posits a mechanistic universe that obeys a certain set of regular law-like principles and that through observation, hypothesis, prediction, testing, and a recursive uh, uh, version of this, that we can better and better come to understand the underlying mechanisms of this clockwork-like universe and we can then take better control over the way that universe functions. Um, that is the discourse of the scientific method as it, would be, as it would be described, I would say, by people who are advocates of the scientific method and also by postmodern analysts of, of the scientific method because they would also say, okay, well, what this has given rise to is a set of practices that include institutions, that include research universities, that include uh, um, uh, uh, companies like pharmaceutical companies and biomedical research companies. Um, and uh, defense contractors, uh, universities, uh, all, you know, even, even middle school science classes, right? Uh, or not even middle school, just K through 12 science classes. There's an entire set of practices linked by their common adherence to the terms of the discourse um, and sometimes linked by even more material uh, connections. Like for example, you know, research universities and uh, uh, biochemical uh, research companies and defense contractors, there's a, there, there are actual material links between them. And, and part of what postmodern analysis would do 
is looking at the practices, connect how the practices have grown out of the discourse, and also then how these practices have become institutionalized in uh, a real material way. In, it, they've coalesced around social forms, corporations, research universities, uh, you know, public school classes, private, you know, all class, K through 12 classes, and then what those things do combined is they have power over self-conception. And the scientific method gives us the self-conception that uh, essentially the universe is out there for us to understand and master. And the, uh, the way that, that this works is that the self-conceptions then feed back on these practices and discourses, strengthening them and making them seem even more obvious and true. So for example, um, the, the more successfully that the scientific method, which is a, essentially it's a, it's a story about the universe and how we uh, can interact with it and come to understand it better. And it's a story about the universe that says this is what the universe is like. It comes with a metaphysics, but discourses almost always come with a basic metaphysics, which is this is the nature of the thing that we're, that, we're, that we're discussing, that we're talking about. In the case of the scientific method, it's the whole universe. The universe is a clockwork-like uh, mechanism that has uh, these law-like principles underlying it, and we can get at those by observing them as they manifest in the physical universe and, and having hypotheses, etc. I don't have to repeat it all. But um, the, the, that's a metaphysics. That's a story. And this is part of what postmodern analysis will do is it will, it will actually say, you know, the scientific method posits this as the truth about the universe. What we should be recognizing is it's a story. It's a set of intellectual tools for making sense of some corner of our experience. In the case of the scientific method, the entire, all four corners uh, of our experience, the 360 degree everything. Um, not every discourse has as its object of study the entire universe like the scientific method does. Liberalism has as its object of study uh, individuals and society and social forms like uh, political systems and economic systems and, and social forms, uh, such as the family and the community. Um, so not the whole universe, uh, uh, but each discourse has its sort of object of inquiry and uh, it's an intellectual tool. So that's what a discourse has. Discourse has an object of inquiry, and then it has its intellectual tools, some of which is concepts and vocabulary, others are styles of reasoning, methods of proof, uh, each different discourse has this sort of set of intellectual tools that are, that are aimed towards the object of inquiry, and then what we get out of it is we get what could, could be called the discourse, we get the uh, things that are said, the conclusions that are drawn. And the conclusions are drawn in a dynamic fashion, right? The scientific method doesn't just say, okay, here's the method, and then we, now we have all these truths that we're uncovering. Part of it is that there's an uncovering, and then there's also a development of the object of inquiry and the intellectual tools that could expand or contract, that could transform. One of the things about a discourse is it's a living, breathing thing in the hands of postmodern analysis, or at least not in the hands of, but in the view of postmodern analysis. It's a living, breathing 
set of intellectual tools, and uh, there's not like, okay, this is the liberal domain of inquiry, and I said object of inquiry, domain is a term that's often used in, in postmodern analysis as well, they mean pretty much the same thing, uh, and these are the intellectual tools we bring to it. Liberalism, like the scientific method, has been developing and adapting each practitioner of this discourse, each person who, who embraces this object of inquiry and uh, takes on the intellectual tools uh, as they exist at that moment is actually contributing to its development and its growth. And there is an evolution. And the practices that grow up out of this, right, practices are essentially the behaviors uh, and uh, institutions that connect a discourse to its object of domain. So the scientific method has, what grows up around the scientific method is a variety of practices, right? And there are multiple institutions, and then of course the behaviors and institutions, and then the connections between them. Between these two things. And between the practices and the discourses. I'm not sure that these arrows are really very elucidating, but they're up there now. Um, <coughs> What these things do, in the view of postmodern analysts, is they are a story about the universe that breeds a set of activities within the universe that are connected to and reinforce the discourse. The more successful a discourse is at generating uh, behaviors and institutions and connections and a strengthening uh, hold over the world, the more that discourse just seems natural. It seems like the right thing. Um, and what happens is we forget that it's a story, if we ever, ever even thought it was a story in the first place. Think about the scientific method uh, at its origin. Um, what, and of course there are various historical points, I don't want to say the Enlightenment uh, or the, uh, the scientific revolution uh, in Europe is the only time this, is, this has started, but that's kind of the, it's the most continuous uh, uh, um, existence of this particular discourse and certainly the most successful version of it. The scientific method was absolutely practiced by the ancient Arabs, by the ancient Greeks, by the ancient Chinese, uh, and uh, all over the world really, but it, it kind of came and went. Uh, and even also in Western Europe, it came and went, right? It, there was a period where the scientific discourse was actually utterly discredited. Uh, think about the, the beginning of the scientific revolution, the, 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 the early Enlightenment period, where proponents were saying, the universe is not this creation of an expression of a divine will that is controlled by an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful divine entity. That was the story. That was the dominant discourse of uh, Europe at the time of the modern scientific method's arrival. As a rival story, it arrives as a rival. And initially, it's actually kind of a plucky underdog. Uh, and that is one of the things that happens, is that a counter discourse to the dominant discourse arises. So there are discourses for sure, and then there are also, and I'll just put up here, counter-discourses, which aren't necessarily a counter-argument. They're not even diametrically opposed, but they counter one version of the universe, one set of intellectual tools, one object of inquiry, one story, with another one. Um, often, though not always, they take as the object of inquiry the exact same domain as the dominant discourse, and not always necessarily. So for example, the early practitioners of the scientific method thought they were taking on the 
uh, Judeo-Christian dominant discourse's view of the universe, but only in its physical manifestation, not on spiritual questions. And so there really was this sort of difference between spiritual questions and uh, questions of, 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 of physical reality, physical dynamics. And so the object of uh, inquiry for the scientific method was smaller than the whole universe. Initially, uh, one of the things that did happen with the scientific method is that as it became more successful within its defined domain, like figuring out how the physical world works and being able to predict it, control it, manipulate it, turn it to human purposes. Um, and I would, I would note here that development, right? Like initially, the, the early scientific uh, revolutionary scientists were interested in understanding the world. They wanted to uncover what the nature of the clockwork universe was. They weren't necessarily tied to the uh, t greater technological mastery over the physical universe. Though what happened was is that as their behaviors, uh, you know, developed, as the scientific method actually became a thing that was more than just a set of ideas, and people began doing science, you know, Galileo and Bruno, they began Newton, Copernicus, these guys all started doing science, and there were these are just the big big names. Uh, there are there are dozens and hundreds of other people who are engaged in these behaviors. Um, as they started finding things out according to their own terms, right? They were drawing conclusions. And then, then those conclusions often were used by others who kind of came along, who, who adopted the discourse to increase humans' mastery over the physical universe. Initially, uh, you know, Newton is not interested necessarily in uh, increasing human mastery over the physical universe. He's under, interested in understanding it. His works help do that. I mean, calculus, and whether Newton or Leibniz invented calculus is, is a debate. I know some of you might be aware of that, but um, the... Uh, the invention of calculus creates a tool for not just discussing the underlying mathematical reality of certain physical uh, properties of the universe, but for predicting and then manipulating and then transforming. And so what the early scientific revolutionaries were contributed to the discourse was a set of basic intellectual tools that then created behaviors that led to other behaviors and led to a transformation of the discourse itself by the 19th century for sure, and absolutely by the 20th century, the scientific method is seen as a tool for human mastery over the physical universe. That is a development, that's a new, uh, that's a new piece of the discourse that has resulted from kind of the feedback between the discourse and the practices that grow up around that discourse and the way that the, those practices then feed into new intellectual tools, broaden the object of inquiry um, to the point where but I would say by the 19th century and definitely by the 20th century, the adherents of the scientific method believe that everything in the universe can be explained with the intellectual tools of the scientific method. That there's no separation between the physical and the spiritual. And basically what happens is the spiritual domain just gets shrunk to nothing, right? And so uh, it is, there's no longer anything to understand. Uh, it's more or less eliminated. And this is the kind of thing that a dominant discourse can do. It can essentially eradicate competing discourses and can gobble up a lot of the territory. Now, what I'm telling you isn't related to liberalism directly. It's really, I'm just giving an example of this, the way in which the postmodern analysis sees the world and sees our human activities, our understandings and the practices that derive from those understandings and the way we talk about it, um, and that it's a, it's a story. And 
some of these stories become extraordinarily successful. And as they become successful, they, uh, we, we, we lose track of the fact that it's a story. We lose track of the fact that the original intellectual tools were a controversial set of ideas about the universe or whatever object of, of inquiry they were aimed at um, that were derided originally and were seen as foolish and ridiculous and uh, dangerous even. Um, and, and that's what the dominant discourse does. The dominant discourse actually kind of laughs at, derides, uh, any counter discourse and says, well, no, no, that's, you know, that, that we understand, we have mastery over the universe, right? Think about the Catholic Church's mastery of the spiritual universe at the beginning of uh, the Reformation. Um, the Reformation itself is a counter discourse about God, really, it's, it's a counter discourse within the spiritual discourse. It's not the scientific method, it's a different way of looking at the relationship between humans and God and the uh, divinity of the universe, and it spawns a whole bunch of counter discourses. Uh, within and you know Protestant uh, theology varies a lot more than Catholic theology. There are you know people who believe in predestination, people who believe in free will, all kinds of things in between. Um, there's all kinds of diversity in the various dis counter discourses that are that are spawned by the Reformation. Both the Reformation and the scientific method are derided by the dominant way of understanding the world, dominant in uh, Europe at the time, Western Europe at the time, and North America. Um, and both of them have come to grow in strength. Uh, expand their domain of inquiry, transform their intellectual tools, um, develop a set of behaviors and institutions and practices that uh, have grown as a more important part of our world. Right? There, there is no such thing as the modern research university if it isn't for the success of the scientific method. There were universities prior to the scientific method, right? and there would probably still be universities today, um, but they would be oriented towards spiritual and philosophical and moral uh, um, questions, the questions of the humanities, artistic questions even, right, which have a different domain of inquiry, object of inquiry, than uh, the physical universe. Um, we, would we would still have universities, but there wouldn't be these big research universities. There might be big universities, but they wouldn't be oriented towards discovering this, the, the underlying physical laws of the universe and creating uh, explanations that give us greater mastery over nature to ascend to sort of the, the, the peak of control over the physical universe. Um, now, even the notion of human beings' control over the universe, this is one of the things I think that this is a great example of how postmodern explanation goes, is that it has power over our self-conceptions and it then expands and deepens what our self-conceptions are to the point where we have this certainty. So the scientific method starts off as this kind of plucky, dissident notion about the universe, right? The universe is not created, overseen by, and essentially run by a divinity. It is a clockwork. It's a, it's a machine that, however it was set up, and then there were deists among the scientific revolutionaries who were like, well, there, you know, God set up, the, God created these laws of the universe and just set it free, right? Now he, there is the ultimate clockmaker. And then others said, no, it just self-created or it created the revolution, whatever it is. But this notion that there's a clockwork universe, and so we're gonna, instead of looking into the mind of God to try to figure out why things are the way they are, we're gonna look at these underlying laws, and how do we get at these underlying laws? By looking at the surface, by making observations, by making predictions. That's the basic sort of uh, revolutionary notion behind the scientific uh, uh, method. It doesn't carry with it, originally, a self-conception of the human being as the ultimate master of the universe and master of themselves. Um, that self-conception grows because the first 
self-conception that happens is people see themselves as part of the physical universe, but also separate from and as observers of it, and we're special. Now, one of the ways in which discourses often replace counter-discourses is that they borrow some of the things, or some of the things from the dominant discourse happen to slide in or accidentally grafted onto it or are explicitly appropriated. One of the things about the uh, Judeo-Christian discourse about the universe is that human beings are special, right? We are the final highest creation of God, right? We're created right at the end, and essentially we're given free will and we're given all this stuff. Um, and we're, we're not the masters of the universe, because God is the master of the universe, but we're special creatures. Uh, and what makes us special is our free will, which is grappling with kind of original sin and blah, blah, blah. I don't need to go into all that stuff. The scientific method sees us also as special, because we are both part of the physical universe, but we are endowed with reason and the ability and, and our senses and the ability to understand the universe. And the rest of the uh, beasts and certainly plants do not have that special place. Plants, animals are all part of physical nature. Humans are both part of and separate from human nature. Now, what, that's, a, that's, that's a story, right? And that's a story that was actually rejected by the dominant uh, discourse, the Judeo-Christian discourse, and the scientific revolutionaries were like, no, 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 that's, this, is, this is the truth of the story. As generations of people participate, as new adherents to this discourse, uh, come, in, come into play, and as the discourse itself begins to displace the other dominant discourse and become dominant itself, um, the, the t intellectual tools, the terms, begin to alter and change. They grow. They evolve. A discourse is an evolving entity. Right? I should probably put this. These things are all evolving. And they're evolving because different people come in and use those intellectual tools and draw different conclusions and expand the domain of inquiry or shrink the domain of inquiry sometimes. And this gives rise to certain behaviors and institutions go around those behaviors and then that changes things. And like I say, suddenly, it's like if, if, if you can, like if you're a, if you're a third generation scientific, scientific revolutionary and you see that calculus and uh, the Newtonian laws of physics and certain things in chemistry, you're like, oh, we could use this to begin building better machines. And uh, those machines could, could produce uh, goods for humans more quickly and more easily than the, than the rudimentary machines that we have or just the handmade stuff. Wow, this is science and industry go together, right? And now the, the concerns and the ideas of industry begin to infiltrate the, uh, the intellectual tools. And scientists are now not just people who are seeking the underlying truths of the universe. They're now seeking these truths to put them to use in pragmatic kind of ways. The original scientific revolutionaries weren't necessarily pragmatists. Galileo wasn't trying to figure out uh, the um, laws of motion uh, in order to be able to make use of that to build a better clock or to build a car or whatever it was, right? Um, but quickly and early on, the, the science and industry, science and productivity come to connect with each other. And that happens over here in the practices domain. The human being who originally is special in the Judeo-Christian discourse, is special in a different way in the scientific discourse, becomes differently special. We now, instead of just being separate, both part of and separate from the physical universe, we are uh, conceived of, and I think this happens gradually until then, it just locks in, as masters of the universe. The universe exists not just for us to understand and behave according to our understanding, but to transform to our own 
uses and our own goals. We are the masters of the universe. Um, one of the things this does is so this self, this is a growing self-conception. So our specialness is part of how we think of ourselves. Think about how you conceive of your relationship to the universe. Uh, do you see yourself as deeply embedded in the web of life? Or do you see yourself as part of a species that essentially has dominion and ownership over uh, the universe and it's there for us to make use of it? Maybe you don't even realize which of those you have or if you have one or the other. Um, but, uh, so our self-conceptions don't necessarily have to be at the front of our brains. They, they, they can just come out actually implicitly in the way that we relate to the universe. Um, not everybody uh, who accepts the scientific method, who, who essentially just believes the scientific method is not a discourse, not a story about the universe, but the right way to go about figuring out the underlying nature of the universe, is going to go around saying, I'm master of the universe, and the universe is out there, and the, and the earth is out there, and research out there for us to turn to human uses. But we have an easy time behaving as though that's the case, because it's an implicit self-conception. So, from the postmodern perspective, a discourse is a story, and at the, at, in the early stages of it, it's more clear that it's a story because the dominant discourse that is looking at this counter, this new sort of upstart counter discourse is like, well, that's just, that's just a story. That's just, that's different. And then over time, as that story becomes successful at generating conclusions, at producing behaviors that lead to institutions that transform the way that people live their lives, that entire discourse, discourse, uh, discourse and practice complex strengthens, evolves, transforms, and shapes our way of understanding ourselves and the world around us uh, in ways that we're not even necessarily aware of, and uh, most of us are not aware of them. The idea behind postmodern analysis, to get back to the, like the, 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 what I was saying at the beginning, like what do, the, what do postmoderns want, is essentially to just say, okay, this idea that you have about yourself, this idea that you have about the world and the universe and your place in it and the relationships between the parts of the universe that you see as, as existing, this is, a, this is a story and you have bought into the story. There's no truth to the universe. There are just stories that we tell from the material at hand and the universe is full of material. There's tons of material and there are different ways to gather that material into a meaningful story. Um, think about uh, an event that's happened in your life, right? Uh, just something like you get, let's say you get into a car accident and uh, you end up getting taken to the hospital and you meet uh, a doctor who you fall in love and you marry each other and that's, that's your, like, that's, that's a story. There's plenty of material there. Now, how do you tell that story, right? You could tell that story as like fate. The car accident was part of the fate. You could tell that story about like the happy, uh, um, coincidence of the universe, you could tell that story as a sort of romantic, like, isn't that, me, you know, meet cute kind of thing. You could tell that story as uh, just like, as a kind of like, hey, you know, that's just people meet in all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of ways that you could gather that material. And uh, probably, and I know this is true for me, that there are stories from my life that I've told at different phases of my life to different audiences. And I've told those stories with a different emphasis. Not that I've made up facts or uh, um, you know, changed the actual material. I've just organized and presented the material in a different fashion based on a different place in my life and based on a different audience. Postmodernism is, uh, as a form of analysis is basically saying that that's what 
happens with every discourse. Every discourse takes the available material and organizes it, analyzes it, and presents it in a way that it, it takes as the truth, with a capital T, I shouldn't air quote it, with a capital T, whereas what it is is it's a provisional lowercase air quoted truth that is just one version. Right? Think of all the ways that the person who got in a car accident and ended up uh, marrying the doctor and you know, being either happy or divorced or whatever, this, whatever, whatever the materials that comes out of it uh, is going to uh, tell that story. There are, there are a variety of different ways to tell that story. That's what we're doing, except we bury very quickly or never notice in the first place that our discourses are stories. Uh, so one of the things about postmodernism is that it posits that a discourse has as an object of inquiry uh, and these intellectual tools, postmodernism itself, we can delineate it this way. And in fact, we can talk about the practices that have grown up around it. Like the postmodern analysis can actually be turned onto postmodernism itself. The object of inquiry is the, the ways in which human beings go about taking the available material of the universe and turning it into stories that they come to, uh, that come to have power over their self-conceptions and that self-conception feeds back and increases uh, and, and evolves the discourses that then have even more power over our self-conceptions and they evolve and they deepen their hold over us. And the dominant discourse has the deepest hold over us until, and it, you know, it doesn't always happen, but until a counter discourse comes along with a different and more compelling story. And that different and more compelling story will take generations to become the dominant discourse. Uh, so one of the things about the intellectual tools of uh, postmodernism is the discourses and practices are among the intellectual tools. Um, historical analysis are among the intellectual tools. The style of reasoning is to look at the ways in which different uh, practitioners of uh, some kind of science or activity, like political science or economics or political philosophy or chemistry uh, or natural science or uh, um, theology, how it is that they talk about it. So that's one of the intellectual tools that postmodernism brings to bear. So uh, postmodernism can actually be used to understand what postmodernism is. It's a form of discourse. And that's part of what makes it kind of a little interesting and slippery is that it's a discourse that uh, posits as one of the primary intellectual tools, discourses. Um, it looks at normativity. It looks at the way, this is another one of the styles of reasoning and one of the concepts of, one of the concepts is actually normativity, is it looks at the way in which different discourses posit shoulds and goods, you should do things this way, this is a good thing versus this being a bad thing, as ways of understanding the universe that are taken to be natural and that then feed what our self-conceptions are. Now, I, I think that that goes a decent way towards pro providing you with the backdrop on what it is that po the postmodern critique of liberalism can and will look like. Liberalism is seen as a discourse about us as individuals and our relationship to society and social forms, the political system, the economic system, other social systems such as the community, the family, friendships, all those things, all, any, any, any social form, you might say. And the, uh, what postmodernism sees is a discourse, much like the scientific method, that starts out as this uh, upstart rival to the dominant 
way of understanding what human beings are. And interestingly, historically, the dominant one, which is conservatism, doesn't even itself have a name or, or a set of practitioners until after liberalism, the liberal critique gets going. Uh, but what conservatism says about the world is what liberalism is essentially uh, um, uh, rebelling against. Provide, I shouldn't say rebelling, providing an alternative story. The star of the story, the main character, the protagonist, the hero of the liberal story is the sovereign individual. And uh, the, so the, some of the primary tools are rationality, consent, legitimacy, rights. Uh, and so what the postmodern critique of liberalism is, is first, this is sort of the entry point of the critique, is that liberalism is a story about individuals and their relationship to social forums. And it posits a particular truth about that, which is that the sovereign individual is the most important, is the starting point, and that social forms should be adapted to the rational needs of the sovereign individual. Social, the political system should be constructed and operated as a rights-protecting entity, but itself it becomes a threat to rights, and so we have to adopt a set of practices and institutions that address this new threat, uh, such as uh, internal and external uh, checks and balances. The, the checks and balances as a concept within liberalism is very important, and that it develops, it's not originally, Locke doesn't talk about the checks and balances. He doesn't even talk about democracy. It, it, so he's, he's like Newton inventing calculus that is later on then used by uh, future uh, uh, scientists to develop technologies that Newton didn't even, wasn't even trying to do. The checks and balances system uh, and democracy itself are, are ways of keeping the political system, which is created for the purposes of protecting the rights of the sovereign individual, to make sure that it stays within those boundaries. And so this is one of the ways in which things, uh, things evolve. Um, Postmodernism just says, this is a story. And one of the reasons why liberalism has such a hard time uh, ultimately proving this story, right? It has its methods of proof, right? But uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why it ultimately has trouble proving this story is because what it needs to do is say, this story is tr not a story. This is just the truth. Um, and as liberalism becomes more successful, as generations go by where this idea of the sovereign individual as the, as, as the center of the universe, as the starting point for our analysis of political, economic, and social forms, um, that it just becomes more and more natural, more naturalistic. So one of the things about discourses, all of this stuff, the conclusions are drawn, this stuff all seems naturalistic. And the naturalism makes the institutions and behaviors seem inevitable, and beneficial. So that's the process. Um, our, uh, you know, the scientific method becomes not just a competing story about the nature of the universe and uh, what uh, is underlying the physical phenomenon that we see and that we, that we inhabit. It is the truth. And the institutions, the research, the companies, the education, uh, all seem inevitable and beneficial. Like, that's what we want. We want to have uh, research universities. We want to have a K-12 through science education. We want to have the math education. We want to have uh, public-private partnerships, corporations, investment. We, we want to be doing this because why? It's inevitable because it represents the increasing understanding of the nature of the universe and the increasing control over the natural uh, world, um, and that's what we're here for, right? Well, 
once we've imbibed the story and put ourselves as not only the hero of the story, but the hero with a particular mission, which is to come to greater and greater control of the universe, to turn it towards our own purposes, yeah, of course, better technology, better productivity, all of these, that's inevitable and beneficial. That naturalism and the inevitable and beneficial nature of what the practices that grow up around the discourse and that evolve uh, as the discourse becomes more successful and the discourse itself evolves as the practices become more, more successful and powerful, um, that just blinds us to the fact that this is just a story. And you know, speaking of the you know the human the human being as sort of intended to be the master of the universe and turn uh, with greater understanding turn the universe more and more to our purposes. Um, one of the things about this is we're starting to see now that following that storyline out to its logical conclusion is actually potentially destroying our ability to live on this planet. Um, but until we've actually seen like oh no it's not beneficial. Ultimately, when we play this thing out. Up until recent decades, and even still, this is a, you know, there's a battle going on about whether or not human beings are destroying our ability to live on this planet. Um, it just seemed beneficial, uh, even to like, even to Marx. Like Marx actually bought into this even more strongly than the pro-capitalists. Human beings need to develop their productive capacity so well that they can actually get beyond toil, right? So productivity is is inevitable and beneficial to, to humans, even within Marxism. So postmoderns would see Marxism as actually just like a, a uh, a, a new volume in the story, right? It's of, of liberalism and of uh, the scientific method and of capitalism. Um, liberalism makes it seem as though the sovereign individual, as a hero, as a character, as a, a moral uh, exemplar, as a starting point and as a, as a primary value, it makes all that seem like that's just the way it's supposed to be. But, uh, and now, but, like there's the but, but what? Like other critiques that we've looked at posit a different hero. Postmodernism actually largely succeeds at avoiding positing a, a replacement hero and saying, no, 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 this book, that's bullshit. Here's the book, right? Uh, that's what every other discourse has done. That's what liberalism has done. That's what communism uh, and socialism attempted to do, Marxism and attempted to do with liberalism is boot that book. Turned out that the liberal book was, was actually harder to boot out uh, than, uh, than the Marxist revolutionaries of the 19th century thought. Um, but postmodernism isn't trying to say, this is a book and, and here's the real book. Postmodernism is saying, this is a book. And there are other books, and this is a book, about the universe and your relationship to it, and it's here, here are the reasons why the tales told in this book, the nature of the hero, the storylines, all the stuff that seems natural and inevitable and beneficial, this is where they come from. Um, but it's just one way of looking at the world. Now, that's, that's, that's less satisfying to us because what we do kind of want, and I think this is this underlying urge to have like, well, which, which book is it? Just tell me which book it is. I'll read the book. I'll orient myself around it. I think postmodernism is saying there's none of these books are the right book. But what we want is we just we want to be able to understand what is accepting this book as the book. What is it doing to us? And what are the ways in which we can actually kind of understand that we're living in a story about the universe, not the truth of the universe, um, and loosen its hold over us. 
And, and again, like that's kind of where it just fizzles and dot, dot, dots because there's no replacement blueprint. There's no replacement book. There's no replacement set of values. And this I think is, is why it's so hard for postmoderns to answer the question like, well, what do you want? Greater understanding of the way in which we have constructed ourselves. <laughs> Greater understanding of the way in which uh, we human beings have built up a story about the universe that seems to us to be the truth of the universe and the naturalistic way, the best way of, of going about it. That is, that's, that is, that's not a knockdown winning kind of proposition for getting people uh, to be like, oh, great. Because it doesn't really tell us what to do. Um, Postmodern criticism, critiques of liberalism are absolutely aimed at showing how it is that the uh, transformation of the liberal discourse and the practices that became built on it starting in the 19th century, well actually starting with the American Revolution, accelerating the 19th century, how they came to shape the world that we live in and what it's doing to us. Um, and there's, there's a, essentially an asking to loosen that hold. Uh, the reading focuses, I would say, a lot of its energy on how it is that our self-conception as not just a sovereign individual, but our self-conception as what the author calls homo economicus, economic human, uh, or economic man to use the sexist term. Uh, homo economicus, how that has been constructed and how powerful it is over our self-conception and our understanding of ourselves and our place in the universe. Um, and it's, I will give one small example in my own personal experience of teaching for 25 years of how I've seen this concept tighten its hold over our self-conception, right? In this, there's this kind of uh, self-reinforcing cycle. Um, students go to college primarily, and this is discussed in the reading to a certain extent, but pri primarily now, not only, and certain people not at all, but primarily as an investment in their future human capital, right? And not even necessarily just as an investment in their earning potential, though that's the primary metric, right? Like, we, hopefully most of you watching this know that, uh, I bet all of you know that, you know, there's a certain amount of lifetime earnings that if you don't go to college, then you do go to college, you're gonna earn a million dollars more over a lifetime. I think, it, I think it's a million dollars compared to a person who just graduates from high school. Um, <clears throat> so, people go to college, as an investment in their own earning potential and their human capital, their productivity. When I first, when I went to college and when I first started teaching in, in, in the 1980s, this was happening. There's no doubt that people were going to college as an investment in their uh, human capital, as uh, an investment in their potential or future earning potential. Um, but many people went to college to discover themselves and their place in the universe, to explore ideas and to sort of swim around in the intellectual soup that was available to them and to find their uh, meaningful place in the universe. And that's, that, I was a philosophy major and so, and that's why I went for and that's kind of how I floated through things uh, and I certainly didn't it, you know, maximize my human capital by getting a PhD in political science. Um, but, uh, and, I'm, and what I don't want to say is like, we were right to do it that way, and you guys who do it as an investment in your human capital are doing it the wrong way. I use it as an example of how, even in just one generation, my, and my lifetime uh, as a teacher, half of my uh, lifetime and, and my entire lifetime up to this point as a teacher, how the tr changing self-conception of people in a liberal society, how the increasing hold of the notion of homo economicus has come to transform without us necessarily even realizing it, the way that we relate to the universe. The, and in this case, one simple thing. Why, why do you go to college? 
Do you go to college at all? Why? And what do you do with that? Right? So, um, it, and it, it affects our behaviors. So for example, when I went to college to find myself, I looked in, when I was, when I was scheduling my term, I, I was a philosophy major, so I had to pay attention to the um, classes that would get me towards my major and be able to get me to graduate. And that was a concern because part of what I wanted, what I did, I wanted a degree. And a, a part of the dominant discourse of the world was that a degree conferred upon you a certain kind of status. Um, it was more about intellectual status and less about uh, human capital development and earning potential. Um, even though it was, I, I went to college in this overlapping period where the homo economicus version of what a college student saw themselves as was becoming, very quickly becoming very dominant. Um, but I picked my classes partly to fulfill the major and fulfill the graduation requirements so I would get the BA and get out. But I also was just like, what looks interesting to me? What, like, what, and, and I picked classes that had, and sometimes the titles were very misleading. I remember taking a class called Myth, Science, and the Modern Mind. I was like, that sounds great. It was the driest, dustiest, worst political, or philosophy class you could possibly imagine. But it sounded fascinating. I took all kinds of classes to essentially uh, follow the self-conception that I had of why I was in college. I was in college to swim around in the intellectual soup. I was in college to find my place in the universe. I was in college to confront all kinds of, and learn about different kinds of ideas. So I chose my classes with that in mind. Um, there were people who, I, right alongside of me, who were choosing classes because those classes would get them skills that would develop their job prospects and would develop their human capital and would make them more successful at uh, the job they aim for. Because I went to school in, in, in Washington, D.C., and while I was a philosophy major, I was largely surrounded by, in my dorm, political science majors and people who wanted to go into politics. It was, a, you know, it, was, it was definitely a training ground. So a decent chunk of people that I went to school with were essentially oriented towards developing their human capital as future political politicos. Uh, and so they chose classes that would get them there. Uh, I've seen over the course of my teaching career, my 25 plus year teaching career, I've seen more and more students coming to my classes and choosing their classes in general as uh, with an eye on their human capital and not so much with their eye on exploring themselves and swimming in the intellectual soup. And I, I'm, try, I'm trying not to sound judgy <laughs> because they're saying, well, I did it this way and if you didn't do it this way, then I think that you're just like, why are you in college? Just to maximize your earning potential. No, you're in college to maximize your earning potential. Great. What the postmodern analysis of Homo economicus, one of the things it will do is show us how powerful this discourse and the set of practices that are connected with it, the, uh, the, uh, economic, the doctrine of economic liberalism, um, the uh, liberal international institutions that are aimed towards uh, spreading economic liberalism around the globe, um, the kinds of political debates and discourses we have, the way that we talk about, like the very fact that it's even studied that, and, and, and announced that people who go to college earn this much more over their lifetime than people who don't. Those pieces of the discourse of liberalism are, uh, contribute to the way that we, that we make our decisions. And that doesn't mean to make you feel like a puppet. You shouldn't feel like a puppet of it. And that's, I don't think, hopefully, that, you know, postmodernists can definitely, I think, can sound very judgy and very snooty and very deprecating. But uh, I believe there's a, there's a non-judgmental way of approaching this to be like, not to judge you for uh, essentially being, uh, channeling your decisions about why to go to college and which classes to take through the homo economicus mindset, so much as to say, you're in a story that you didn't even necessarily consciously choose that story. I'm gonna choose homo economicus as my model for how to think of myself in relation to the world. That story has been developing for centuries. 
it's been increasing its hold. Liberalism has been developing more and more, at least in the United States particularly, but also in Western Europe, as um, away from this, this Enlightenment notion of the sovereign individual um, coming up with their own con conception of the good and using their instrumental rationality to pursue that good, as I presented it, but coming more and more to construct the sovereign individual as homo economicus. And uh, it brings with it what liberalism is not supposed to do. It brings with it a dominant concept of the good, right? The dominant concept of the good is to maximize our earning potential, maximize our productivity, maximize the way that we can contribute to the greater human mastery over the physical universe. Uh, and that's, that, that's the critique. The critique is not, okay, here's a better way to live your life, or that's bad and this is good. The critique is, this is what's been happening. Here's how the original terms of the discourse, the upstart liberal discourse that Locke kind of kicks off, uh, and the intellectual tools that were there, Here's the, and the sovereign individual and rationality uh, are definitely uh, very much key intellectual tools from the very beginning. Here's how that discourse and the practices it spawns, de democratic revolutions um, and uh, the development of democratic forms and political struggles. Here's how these things have evolved to get us to a place where at this moment in time, the dominant self-conception of ourselves Yes. The dominant self-conception is homo economicus. And what that does is it feeds back so that our politics becomes about the maximizing of our human capital. Um, and so the political struggle, the political discourses, the political battles become increasingly about how do we improve our economy? How do we maximize our productivity? Not the broader question, which democracy could always open up, like what should we use our collective resources towards? How should we conceive of ourselves as a people and as a nation, as a community? What are the, what are the characteristics and traits and virtues we want to cultivate? I mean, you can argue about that. It's though, some of those things are already answered. Uh, the why and the what. What are we trying to do? We're trying to maximize our productivity. We're trying to improve our economy. Uh, we're trying to uh, be ever more uh, productive and have a higher standard of living. And then the question just becomes, how do we get there? And so the debate, for example, between Democrats and Republicans is not about ends, it's about means. Like, how do we have a stable economy? How do we generate uh, prosperity uh, that works for everybody? Republicans and Democrats don't disagree about the ends. They disagree sharply and, and, and very uh, clearly about the means to those ends. Part of what the reading for today wants to point out is that this attenuation of what the political debate is to economic questions, even when we're talking about healthcare, which really is kind of a question about you know, community well-being um, and individual well-being, it becomes primarily, it's primarily about costs and a sixth of our economy is dedicated to healthcare. Think about all of the political issues that uh, you can imagine, and most of them have a heavily economic aspect to them. Um, <clears throat> the postmodern critique of liberalism is that liberalism has increasingly become economic liberalism, uh, that the central star of the liberal universe, the sovereign individual, has increasingly become homo economicus, that the conception of the good, which was supposed to be up to us, uh, is really increasingly handed to us through the terms of the dominant liberal discourse as maximizing your human capital. That's what you do. Um, your concept of the good is being more productive 
and that also yourself more satisfied with the things that you get. Those two things are connected. So your conception of the good is both to be a more productive being as well as to be uh, a being who, has, who generates satisfaction and happiness and self-interest, right? And what that does is that attenuates our political discourse. It attenuates the options that we have for conceiving of who we are, for choosing a concept of the good. Um, in a way, the development of liberalism, the liberal discourse and the practices that have emerged from it, and the, dominance that, the dominant place it's come to occupy in the universe, from this upstart notion in Locke's hands, and from this plucky little liberty-loving revolution in, 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 in North America against the British Empire, to uh, the current world that we occupy, there has been a development, an evolution, an increasing dominance of the liberal discourse, but there's also been an increasing focus and attenuation on homo economicus on economic questions as the primary political questions. And that attenuates our participation in the democratic community as, it, uh, as people who are seeking common ends, who are seeking other answers to other questions besides material productive, questions about material uh, uh, productivity. Uh, and that what now has happened is that our star of our story, our upstart counter discourse, which is what liberalism is at, at the, in the Enlightenment, um, at the beginning of the Enlightenment, that character has grown into something quite different, um, more narrow, and are, as that character, who continues to be the star of the story, the sovereign individual is still the star of the story, but that character conceives of itself in more narrow terms. And so, in a way, there's kind of a call for, well, if you, if you buy the basic intellectual tools of liberalism, and the sovereign individual is a, is a pretty, is a, is a pretty powerful and compelling one. Postmodern critique is saying, well, you can loosen up all of the things that have come to uh, be uh, kind of agglomerated onto that. Um, and we can loosen up our politics, and we can loosen up how it is that we see the relationship between politics and economics, and broaden that set of questions, and change our political discourse to be less economically oriented. There's really, in this particular reading, I think, and in, in general for postmodern analyses of liberalism, there's a call to loosen up the hold of homo economicus over our own self-conceptions. Uh, so that's not taking a new book and replacing it like fascism is asking or Marxism-Leninism or communitarianism asking. Um, and actually communitarianism is really more asking to like, instead of replace one book with another, it's really just saying, well, it's really a two-volume a two companion set. Our, our, our nature as, com as community members and our nature as, as uh, separate individuals should be both a big part of what our self-conception is. Postmodernism is not asking for some kind of book substitution. It's really just asking us to kind of look at the story <clears throat> in a different light and seeing it more as a set of uh, ideas that are not the truth of the universe, the truth of human nature, the truth of the relationship between the individual and society, but that are one, increasingly uh, accepted and increasingly naturalistic version of what it is that we as human beings are. And what does that do What in, in the hands of, of people who, who say, oh, that's interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick up the postmodern critique and I'm gonna use that set of intellectual tools to, to dissect what liberalism has become and how it's come to dominate and how it's come to, to, uh, to sort of attenuate our politics, my self-conception, the role that I see myself as having in the world. What are people gonna do with, with, with knowing that that's a book, a story, instead of the, the capital T truth about the universe? There's like, there's no way really to know. And uh, there's, within postmodernism, there's actually a kind of a, um, a, a 
a contempt for trying to tell people what to do with this and to try to posit some kind of here's the better thing because that would be to rely on that would be to say this is naturalistic this is the right way to be that that would be to to smuggle back in what liberalism does and it's problematic is a pure normative standpoint it's very difficult to avoid smuggling a pure normative standpoint back in um, and in fact it creates a lot of dissatisfaction and confusion all right well i think that that does it uh, at least I hope that that does it. Um, I feel at this moment as though I personally understand postmodernism as well as I've ever understood it. Though, as I said in, at the beginning, for me, over the course of 25 years of thinking about this stuff and reading it and teaching it, it has come and gone. So I'm at kind of an apex moment for now, and I really hope this apex moment lasts. And I also hope that it has conveyed across to you guys watching this through the technological means that you're watching it, um, that you, at least for some time, you're like, oh, I think I, I think I get, I think I get what postmodernism is. All right, that's it.